Father, thanks for that moment just to be silent, quiet our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. Father, through the power of your word and the power of your spirit, that you would make things clear to us that we need clarity on. You would help us see our culture as a church community and a family, and you would correct things that need to be corrected. You would help us align uh, with you, Jesus. So give us eyes to see this morning. Give us ears to hear this morning. Give us hearts to be transformed, to look more and more like your son, Jesus. We are so in desperate need of you. We ask it this morning in your name. Amen. Well, my wife and I have been married for over 21 years now, and um, those of you that are married in the room, there's an interesting time in your relationship before you get married when you meet the in-laws and the opposing family. Opposing is not the right word. That's a, that was a Freudian slip, I guess. Uh, no, definitely. My in-laws are amazing. I've talked about them before. They, they go to church here. Um, they're, they're awesome. Um, but there's, there's a time when you meet, and, and my wife... Her mom comes from a family, a very large family. They were, she is one of 11 children in 14 years, strong Catholic roots. And so when I first started hanging out with my wife's family, especially for Christmas, it's like 70 people, just the immediate family. And I would go over there and I'm, I'm just kind of watching because I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. This is, uh, when you come into a culture that's not your own, you can really see certain things that when you're in your culture, you usually just don't see it. It's just part of what you do all the time. Um, and so it was very interesting for me to come into that new culture and see certain things and have conversations with my wife and her go, well, that's not normal. I was like, well, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't know if it is. I don't know if it's normal. Uh, and for her to go, I never really thought about that. That's just kind of how we do things. Um, I also moved around a ton growing up. Uh, we moved about every three years to a different state. And so I learned what it meant to step into a new culture and go, oh, this isn't like what it was when I was here. And so I moved to Phoenix in 1990, right before high school, and I moved from Virginia. That was the last place I lived. I lived in Virginia for a little over three years. And back east is very different than here, Phoenix. I came here, and I was a very proper yes ma'am, yes sir, and adults were looking at me like, don't talk to me that way. That's disrespectful. And I was like, I will get smacked if I don't talk to you that way in my culture I just came from. And so we need to understand that culture for all of us is something that we don't always understand when we're in it. But when somebody comes from the outside and starts poking around and looking at different things to go, oh, this is helpful for us to realize that we are actually like this. So what we're going to talk about this morning, just this morning, and hopefully something we look to do at least once a year, is talk about our culture as Redemption Church. To say, these are the things that we want to be about. Now, hopefully, if you're just visiting, you're just in town, uh, hopefully you feel like if you're a follower of Jesus, these things line up with followers of Jesus. Um, but we want to talk as a family to say, these are the things that we're really going to anchor ourselves to as a church community. And in our covenant members packet, if you've read it, if you're a member here, um, we have quite a few articles. The first article is about love and how love should be the dominant force of everything we do. The second thing we talk about in that covenant members packet, the second article is on culture. Let me read a little piece of what it says there. It says, culture is a set of beliefs made visible, to paraphrase Dutch theologian Hervin Bavik. 
Beyond our written statements, what we truly believe and value will show itself in our actions, especially our actions towards one another. In any group, a culture emerges over time through particular language, rituals, humor, among other things. Values and expectations become collectively agreed upon, although they often go unspoken. Every family or organization develops a culture of its own. You know, Peter Drucker, who is a, a widely known uh, businessman in, in our culture, he talks about how strategy is important. If you're going to do something in business, strategy is a massive part of the equation. If I want to go from here to here, what are the strategic t- uh, steps I need to take to get me to where I want to go? So he's a big proponent of strategy. He believes in that, but he has this quote that he says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Listen, you can have all the right strategies, but the culture dominates your organization, your business. The culture is more important than any strategy you might have. And it's been said that you will either manage your culture or your culture will manage you. And as we looked at our text this morning in Romans chapter 12, Paul is alluding to this. As he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That there is a certain way that our world operates. And we've talked about it in our countercultural convictions last year about how there's just a natural drift because of the brokenness of the world, because of sin in the world, that you will kind of fit into this box. And Paul is pressing against that. He says, don't do that. Don't naturally drift into what the world is doing. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love how the New Living Translation puts that verse. says, don't copy the behavior or customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, changing the way you think. Jesus is doing this constantly as he steps onto the scene. And specifically in Matthew chapter 5, when he gives this most well-known sermon uh, in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, in verse 21, he starts to use this phrase and he continues to use it throughout his sermon. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. It's what he's doing in the culture. He's saying, listen, this is what the culture says. Even the religious culture says this is normative. You've heard it said this, but I say do this. Even in verse 43, for an example, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the cultural standard, even religiously, that you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. But he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We have to be intentional to think through our culture as a family, as a church, to say, what do we really want to be about? So we don't just drift into what is just normal or what's expected. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And here's how it's going to look. Because normally, again, we're just walking through a text. This is going to be different this morning. Um, I'm going to read six different statements that we find in our Redemption Covenant members packet, six statements that Redemption Church has decided, this is what we want to be about. And then in those statements, I'm going to combat it with what the culture would say, because most of those statements are countercultural. And then I'm going to attach a different text to it. So we're not going to be in one passage, but we're going to be kind of be all over the place in the Bible this morning. Make sense? Okay. Um, Let's jump into our first one. And this one, if you've been around redemption at all, at any level, you've probably heard this first one uh, just because it seems to be plastered everywhere we go. Uh, But number one is that all of life is all for Jesus. 
All of life is all for Jesus. The culture would say, you need to compartmentalize your faith. You have your family here, you have your work here, you have your friends here, and there's no need for them to blend over together. One of my kids, when he was young, you could say he's a picky eater, but I'm a picky eater, right? So I don't like that label, even though it might be true. But do you know those people that like, they don't want their food touching? Like they either need to get those plates where it's like, I can't have my food touching. It just, I, I don't like it. A lot of the culture will have that kind of perspective on religion or God. Like, listen, you can, I'm all about you going to church on Sunday or going to the mosque on Sunday or doing whatever you want in your religious box. Just don't bring that into our conversations on Monday in the workplace. I want them to be compartmentalized. And there's kind of an understanding of that, that you don't cross over your faith with your regular life. But we would say, and we believe the Bible teaches that all of life is actually all for Jesus. That faith in Jesus cannot be relegated to a private experience on Sunday. It's fundamental to our day-to-day lives. There's no area of the cosmos that is exempt from Christ's reign. Galatians chapter 2, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, Paul is going and he meets Peter, who in this passage he calls Cephas, which is the same name for Peter. Um, And Peter decides, uh, he gets pulled, maybe drift into this area where he starts um, going back to the old law in the Old Testament. He starts eating uh, separate from the Gentile people. They were Jewish people and they were Gentile people. In the Old Testament, you had to eat separately because the Gentile food was not clean. But Christ changed that. And he even comes to Peter multiple times in Acts to tell him, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. But then Peter somehow slips back into that old way. This is what Galatians 2, 14 says. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What is Paul saying here in this moment when he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel? What I believe Paul is saying is that he's saying that all of life is all for Jesus. Something as normal as eating. Peter, you have forgotten that your faith in Jesus makes a difference in every single thing you do. So the question this morning is, is your conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? When you think we got the good news of Jesus and how your life is changed by him, are you just good in here on Sunday and you can sing and you can read the word and then you say, well, it doesn't apply to what I do Monday through Saturday. Your life should be changed. All of it should be impacted by who Jesus is. And we believe that that's true, that all of your life is all for Jesus. Number two. If all of life is all for Jesus, number two is we take God seriously, but not ourselves. We take God seriously, but not ourselves. The culture would say, if you take God seriously, you also have to take yourself seriously. Being holy is very, very serious and right and good. And you can't have much fun. You just have to be proper, maybe hold your hands like this all the time. And we believe that God is holy and right, and good, and we need to take him seriously. But that doesn't mean we need to take ourselves seriously. We would say that chronic seriousness is often a symptom of chronic insecurity, actually. 
that there is one Lord who demands our loyalty. And even he told jokes, he went to parties, he had a good time, and that's okay. What's happened in our culture is because of sin and the allure of sin, we say, okay, we don't want to do any of those types of things. We don't want to dance. We don't want to have a good time. Now, can those things lead to sin? Absolutely. We have to be careful of those things because we do take God seriously. We take sin seriously, but that does not mean we can't have fun or have a good time. And it also means that we can just be normal people. <laughs> like we can take God seriously. We can not take ourselves too seriously. Here's an illustration if you take yourselves too seriously. Um, most of us just had family pictures for Christmas, maybe. You sent them out. You had cards, all the nice things. Um, when you took that group picture with those people and you saw either it came back printed or you saw it on the camera or you saw it on a computer, who's the first person you look at? Yourself, right? And, and, and what happens if everybody looks great and you don't? It's like, can we, can we take it again? Let's run it back, like, like one more. Like, and we can do that now because of digital cameras and things like that. But, but often we care more about our own appearance than we do everybody else because we're taking ourselves too seriously often. Romans chapter 12, Paul says it this way in verse 3, right after the verse we read. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they were doing this all the time, thinking of themselves too seriously. Listen to what Jesus says to them specifically in Matthew chapter 23. He says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads to put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries, this was this box that they would have, make them wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi, by others. And Jesus is constantly pushing against this idea of taking yourself too seriously. There's a humanity in us, a theology of limits to us. That's actually good. That's a good thing. So we take God seriously, but not ourselves. Number one, that all of life is all for Jesus. Number two, we take God seriously, but not ourselves. And this next one is tethered to that. Number three, we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Nothing to prove and no one to impress. The culture would say the formula for self-worth, for your worth, if you matter or you matter, is your performance plus the praise and applause of others. That is where you get your worth and whether you matter or not. That is the culture we live in. And so when we live in that culture, we're constantly trying to impress people, to prove ourselves to other folks. And this is our whole life. This is school. This is sports. This is our job. This is how you make it in this culture is you do the right things to get the nods and the next steps forward. My, my daughter and I have um, a pretty cool relationship with musicals. We like to go to musicals and watch musicals. She just made the spring musical for her high school. She's a freshman, which is awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's Footloose. 
which I'm like, yes, because I was, grew up in the 80s. I keep trying to tell her to convince the drama teacher to let me be. There's a pastor in that. Like, I, I can play that role. Like, this is my moment, Ryan. She's like, no, Dad. <laughs> no, you know? Anyway, um, we love musicals, and uh, she turned 15 last month, and for her birthday, we decided uh, Hamilton was in town. And so we took a second mortgage on her house and, <laughs> and bought tickets to Hamilton for her birthday. So her and I went to, to see Hamilton at ASU Gamage, and it was unbelievable, and it was great. Um, if you're familiar with that story, if you've seen that play, um, Hamilton is a guy we kind of root for as Americans, and it's such an unbelievable show. But when you really stop and you look at what he did in his life, he's a wreck. Everybody that follows him dies or tragically is abused. And Hamilton in that play, all he's doing is trying to impress other people. He's trying to prove himself. He's taking himself way too seriously. And that's a lot of what our culture is. We have to step back and go, okay, let's not drift into that mentality and even as churches in general, Redemption Church or churches in general, that's an easy thing for people to do. There was a study done a couple years back by these guys, and it said that 400% of pastors have narcissistic tendencies. And you think about that, and it's like somebody stands up, and all these people are watching them talk every single week. And it's like fuel to the fire of a narcissist. And as their church grows, it just continues to grow. That's not helpful. It's not healthy. We need to be aware of that. As churches and as people of God, uh, Zach Eswine uh, has a book called Imperfect Pastor that is hands down one of my favorite books when it comes to pastoral ministry. I would just encourage anybody that is working with people um, to read that book. And in it, he, he's pressing against this idea of kind of this uh, narcissistic kind of CEO show type of pastor. He says this. He says, this misunderstanding of our pa pastoral capacity can tempt us towards this, an impatient mindset of trying to do large things famously and immediately. Trying to do large things famously and immediately. And he says, when you start to do that as a pastor, this produces weariness and pain often in others. And so he's saying, we don't need to do that, right? Even our culture, we can get swept up into how many people are in the room today. Well, it's kind of low today because it's the day after Christmas. Already we're doing confession and I'm confessing in my own soul going like, why do I care how many people are in the room? Could I be faithful to the people that are in the room and not feel weird because it's half full today and normally it's full? And I need to confess that and go, God, you have a different thing for us, for me, for us in the room this morning. Can I be faithful to that thing? Because again, our culture will say, well, it's about how are you growing and how are you impressing and what's the next thing? And we can get into this danger of trying to impress people with who we are. And the kingdom is slow and low and hidden. That's the way of Jesus. It's often not that way in our culture. But we need to be reminded the Bible teaches a very different story and the gospel preaches something very different than we have uh, things to impress and things to prove to people. Ephesians says it this way in chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that 
anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. There's a freedom, if you really believe that to be true, that you get your worth and value from the gospel and his grace rather than anything you do or say. It's good to know. Number one, all of life is all for Jesus. Number two, we take God seriously but not ourselves. Number three, have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Number four, there are no little people and no little places. There are no little people and no little people, or no little places. The culture would say, this person is important, and this person probably not so much. That's kind of the idea where fame comes from. Right, and we would get this all the time when we worked in ministry with athletes. Uh, my wife and I were on a staff with a ministry for 15 years to college athletes, and we worked down at the University of Arizona for seven of those years, and we had a Bible study with the football team. There were about 25 of the football players that would come. The strength coach would lead it, and it was an unbelievable time. Well, you know, Tucson is a college town. There's no pro sports in Tucson. So when I would have conversations with people, uh, whether they were my personal, our personal supporters or they were just knew I worked in athletic ministry and I worked with athletes, and they would find out that I was a part of the football Bible study because they would read about something in the paper, and they would ask me, and they would go, hey, so, like, is Nick Foles in that room? Like, Nick Foles was a quarterback at, at Arizona. He won a Super Bowl with the Eagles. He plays for the Bears now. He's great. Um, and he loves Jesus. And I would say, yeah, Nick's in, the, Nick's in the room. Nick was a guy that I had the opportunity to, to be a part of his journey, and he's a great dude. Love him and Tori. But I was like, there's a guy named Victor Yates in the room. Do you want to ask me about Victor Yates? Victor's a walk-on, never saw the field, loves Jesus ferociously. But nobody wants to hear about Victor Yates. They want to hear about Nick Foles. Because in their mentality, there's big people and there's little people, right? And there's big places and there's little places. I mean, we live in Phoenix. I don't know about you. When I meet somebody from out of town or if I'm somewhere else and they say, where are you from? And I say Phoenix, I kind of have some pride in saying I'm from Phoenix. I really love Phoenix. Um, it's the fifth biggest city in our country. It feels big because it is literally big. If I was from Quartzsite, which is right on the border of California and Arizona, when you drive over to California on the 10, you go by Quartzsite, and then Blythe is, is met. Next, I always wonder when I drive by, I was like, did Blythe and Quartzsite like have a fight? Like they're like 10 miles away from each other. They're these little tiny towns and like, and then there's nothing after that for an hour. Um, but if I said like I'm from Quartzsite, it's like, oh, hopefully nobody's in Quartzsite in the room, right? But, <laughs> but, but do, that's what I'm saying. Do you feel that? Like, why, why is that? Why do we feel good about, oh, I'm from, like, that's like, there's no little places. There's no little people. We believe that every single person is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated with dignity in which we would treat God himself. That there's no hierarchy when it comes to our humanity. James points this out in James chapter 2. When he says this, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold in the faith of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, you have not made the distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. This phrase, no little people, no little places, is actually taken from Francis Schaeffer's book titled No Little People. Schaefer says, there's no little people in God's sight, so there's no little places. To be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants you, this is the creature glorified. So when you think about your own life and you think about these categories of big, big people, little people, or big place, little place, I want to ask you a couple of questions to hopefully uh, give us a sense of, are we living in that mentality or are we living that every place matters and every person matters? When you think about it, are you genuinely trusting God for the place he has you in right now? Or are you going, I need to get out of this place. This place is too small. I've got bigger things. Are you trusting God for where he has you right now? Will you recognize the place that God has you instead of looking for a bigger place from a human vantage point? Or what if you never do anything again that feels as important as what you just finished doing? You're going to be a wreck if that's the case. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Between changing diapers, fixing meals, and carpooling your kids, cleaning up from a stomach bug, you feel like a little person in a little place. Perhaps you're single in the world of marriage and family has passed you by, promoting you to feel like a little person in a little place. Maybe you're a working woman, but the career goals you once had now seem uh, elusive. You might feel like a little person in a little place. Maybe you've chosen to enter the world of foster care and adoption like we talked about last week. And because of your sacrifice, you no longer have the freedom that some of your friends do. And you find yourself struggling to know how to have meaningful uh, engagement with this phase of your life and you're tempted to feel like a little person in a little place. Or maybe you're a woman well along in your years wondering what the meaning of your life has since you're no longer married and your kids are grown and out of your house, pondering what your purpose is and you feel like a little person in a little place. I remember my wife's grandma, the one that had the, the, the 11 kids in 14 years and all their kids are finally out of the house and we went to visit her uh, when she was still around and um, I remember walking out and she just, when you take care of 11 children in 14 years, that just becomes who you are and now they're all gone. And so I remember every time I would come, she would want to feed me. She would want to take care of me because like that's just in who she is. I remember we walked out one time and we just stopped by to say hello real quick and there was no meal involved and, there, and like she couldn't handle it. So like we're walking out the door and she goes, take this. And she just like pulls something off her wall. and says, you should have this. Okay, yeah. Like, but what do you get when you get to those different phases of your life? And if your identity has been built on those certain things and now you go, who am I? We believe that there's no little people and there's no little places. That that matters to God and it matters to us. So number one, all of life is all for Jesus. Number two, we take God seriously but not ourselves. Number three, we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Number four, there are no little people and no little places. Number five, we are called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. We're called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Us as Christians, us as Redemption Church. The culture would say, you know what? Like, do the Lord's work, but do it however it needs to get done. The ends justify the means. 
right? I don't care how you do it, just get it done. And we would say, I don't think that's actually what the Bible would teach. Last Sunday, I don't know how many of you guys read or heard, but Donald Trump Jr. was here in Phoenix at the convention center. Uh, he was here as a featured speaker of Turning Point USA's America Fest, which is just like this four-day event of young conservatives. Now, I'm not trying to make political statements in this moment, um, and I'll give context for what he says, but I thought it was interesting what he said and what was written about what he said. Um, He's basically up there during his speech, and he's talking about um, how the left, specifically President Biden, have like ruined America. Like it, it took, it only took that long. And America's, I told you guys, I told you guys we shouldn't have elected him. It's terrible, right? So he's going on and on about that. Um, and then he, he starts to go about how we need to be fighting back from the right. We need to fight back on the left. And he says this, and I'm, I'm going to quote it. It's not on the screen, but um, I'll quote and unquote it. Um, so he says this, quote, and this will be contrary to some of our beliefs, talking about fighting back, because I'd love not to have to participate in a cancel culture. I'd love if it didn't exist, Trump continued. But as long as it does, folks, we better be playing the same game, okay? We better be playing, we've been playing t-ball for a half century while they've been playing hardball and cheating, right? He continues on to say this, we've turned the other cheek. And I understand, I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing, end quote. So what Trump Jr. is saying is like, listen, I know Jesus says like, turn the other cheek, but that's, that's not gonna work. That doesn't work in this political game. They're throwing fire. We have to throw fire back. We're losing this battle because we're following the words of Jesus. And when I heard that, I heard him say that, when I heard it quoted and I read about it, and I was like, part of me is like, he's right in the sense of like, if you want things done in our culture, being lowly is not the way to do it. It's not. Like from his perspective, if he, I don't know where he is in his faith or what he claims about the Bible or Jesus other than this quote, but if he doesn't know Jesus, why wouldn't he say that? But we're people of Jesus, and we walk the way of Jesus, and we will turn the other cheek to say, like, this isn't getting us anywhere. The Jesus stuff isn't getting us what we need. It might be right, but what we need is different from what the world needs. We need to walk in the way of Jesus. We're called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. You can get stuff done even in a church, even in an organization that claims the name of Jesus in a wrong, backward way. And you can justify it because look what happened. Look at these people coming to Jesus. And we believe that we want to do the Lord's way, the Lord's work, loving God, loving others, but we want to do it His way. This is what 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God's way and the way of the Bible and the way of Jesus, as you study the person of Jesus, is countercultural. It's going to take longer. You're going to have to be more patient. You're going to have to value people more than you value the task 
That's countercultural. But we believe it's true. We want to be people that do the Lord's work the Lord's way. All right. All of life is all for Jesus, number one. Number two, we take God seriously but not ourselves. Number three, we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Number four, there are no little people and no little places. Number five, we are called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. And number six, life is naturally supernatural. Life is naturally supernatural. The culture would say that proof is in the data. It's in the science. If we can explain it, if we can see it, that's what makes sense to us. And really, the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment have changed the way we think about our lives and how we think specifically about the supernatural. Some of you guys were here when Marcus Doe, who's one of our pastors down in Tucson at a redemption, came up and preached for us last year. Uh, his story is unbelievable. Marcus is from Liberia, Africa. And him coming over to the States and his, his journey is... is uh, it's really, really remarkable. But we were in a conversation a couple of months ago with some other folks, and we were talking about this issue of dependence and this issue specifically about prayer. And Marcus said something. He kind of, he, you know, we're in the room, a bunch of us talking about the sermon, or what, and then like Marcus speaks and we all just stop. And we're like, oh my goodness. Because he'll say something, we're like, let's just close in prayer. Because <laughs> he's really deep and he's insightful and the journey he's had with the Lord, it's just, it's really good. Um, so we're talking about prayer, we're talking about dependence, and he kind of stops the room. He says, you know what? And he's always so like, barely puts his hand up, you know. Would, would you mind if I say something? I was like, yes, yes, Marcus. Um, he goes, I had a stronger prayer life before I came to America and became a pastor. He goes, when I was in Africa, when I got sick, or I knew somebody that got sick, our first thing we did was we would pray. He goes, when I was hungry in Africa and I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from, the first thing I would do is I would pray. And I would ask God to provide a meal for me. I would pray when I was sick and I would ask God to heal me in my sickness. He goes, now, when I'm sick, I call the doctor. Now, when I'm sick, I just go down to Walgreens and I get some medicine. Now when I'm hungry, I don't pray. I just go to the store and get food. Now, medicine is from the Lord. It is not wrong. Doctors are from the Lord. Don't hear me say you can't trust those things. But his whole point and my point is that our natural posture and our default is typically not to lean on the Lord because we've gone, well, like I'll pray. And it's kind of like, I guess I'll pray if nothing else works but we're naturally going to those other things first. And we have to recognize that prayer is naturally supernatural, that when we depend on God, his love for us, his care for us, that he wants to engage with us in a real and normal way. But it is supernatural that the God of the universe wants to communicate with you. He wants to communicate with me. And that prayer is something that is so natural, just talking is a natural thing for us to do, but we are talking to the one that can change everything. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? We need to be reminded of that truth, that prayer is naturally supernatural. We believe that God meets us in the ordinary, in the bread, in the wine, in homes, in hallways, and the ink, and the page, in conversations, and hugs. Creation is charged with God's presence. It is all around us all the time. We believe that that's true. 
You know, we had some friends surprise us last year by showing us a positive pregnancy test that they had wrapped as a gift for their parents. And it was great. It was a great moment. Um, and as much as science can assist us in the birth of a child, and those things are very necessary, science cannot explain the miracle of birth. It doesn't make any sense. You have a human growing inside of you? That's crazy. Like, we can technically, like, there's things that can help it. But again, like, we have to believe that God is behind what is going on in our world and our cosmos. Do we believe that? passage I chose for this statement is maybe one you're familiar with. If you grew up in church at all and you had to memorize scripture, this, this was your go-to passage. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse in the Bible, so it's always the easiest one to first, first memorize. But I love this passage when talking about life is naturally supernatural because we've seen the scene. We preached through John 11 last year. Jesus comes up on, on the death of his friend Lazarus and he sees his sisters that are undone in grief and he steps into the scene and the God of all humanity comes down, takes on flesh and he doesn't just go, I'll fix it. It's easy, no problem. He sits and he weeps. He does something very natural even though he's supernatural. He cries with them. Prayer is naturally supernatural. There's something going on that's beautiful and simple and mysterious all at the same time. And we believe that's true. We need to be reminded of that often in our culture. So those are the six statements. Number one, let me read them to you one more time. All of life is all for Jesus. We take God seriously but not ourselves. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress. There are no little people in no little places. We are called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way and that life is naturally supernatural. That's what we want to be about here as a church community. I hope that's what you want to be about as you walk with Jesus, those of you that are followers of Jesus in the room. And the good news of the gospel is that what Jesus comes to do is he lives a perfect life and dies a death that you and I deserve and then beats death and raises on the third is that all these things can be true of us because of that. That he is in everything. All of life is all for him. That because of the gospel, we can take God seriously, but we don't have to be so uh, bent out on what we do or how we do it because the gospel is where we get our identity. We don't have to prove to people or impress people because our identity is found in the work of Jesus, not in our own work because of what Jesus does on the cross. That there are no little people that Christ died and came and lived for the smallest of us for every single place, and that because of Jesus, we're called to do the Lord's work the Lord's way, and because of what he does, it is naturally supernatural. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness and love to us. I pray as we live our lives and we have our family and our community at church that we wouldn't slip into following the world's way when it comes to Christianity, but that we would follow you and your way as we see it in the Bible, Spirit, as you speak to it, as we see it in your son Jesus, that we would be changed so that we would know what it looks like to love you and to love our neighbor. We ask that you would do it in and through us. We pray it in your name. Amen.